The COVID-19 situation has seen a steep decrease in local air pollution as well as global greenhouse gas emissions. However, this has come as a result of lockdowns and mobility restrictions. So, how do we curb local pollution levels and emissions while still maintaining our level of mobility? Enter the concept of electric vehicles, also known as EVs. EVs allow the freedom of mobility without the associated problems of high carbon emissions typical of internal combustion engine vehicles. As Southeast Asian governments develop capabilities for large-scale electrification, what are the implications for the larger mobility ecosystem and how would this interplay with a city's existing electrical grid? Today, we discuss electromobility in Southeast Asia. Hi everyone, welcome to another edition of our Future of Mobility series, bringing you the top voices from the sector. Decision makers, innovators and shapers pushing the envelope on future ideas for transportation and beyond. I'm your host Dishraf and today we are joined by Terence Siu, President of the Electric Vehicle Association of Singapore and Andre Berdachevsky, Director for the Future Mobility Solutions Centre at Deloitte. Terence and Andre, thanks for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Good to be back. I'd like to start off with some introductions. Terence, as the president of the Electric Vehicle Association of Singapore, can you briefly share about the vision IVAS has for electromobility in Singapore and what IVAS has been doing specifically with the ecosystem, public and private, to achieve this vision? The goal of EVAS is to speed up Singapore's transition towards an all-electric future for road transportation. So this association was set up for three reasons. They are to promote the usage of electric vehicles in Singapore. Number two, to create a platform for knowledge exchange and industry development and to foster collaboration amongst the stakeholders. And the third is to provide the Singapore government with industry perspectives and recommendations on policies that will impact the use of electric vehicles. So why did we create this association? It's because we felt that it was necessary to engage a very diverse group of stakeholders like automakers, building owners, utility companies, charging hardware manufacturers to speed up the adoption of EVs and to accelerate the deployment of nationwide charging products. And Andre, as the director for Deloitte's Future Mobility Solutions Centre, can you share your outlook of the energy industry and how it will evolve with the rising trend of electromobility? Thanks, Dee. So I will not get tired emphasizing that the environmental crisis is one of the biggest crises of our generation, and we need collective action to address it. And Companies are already going this way, creating a growing pool of renewable energy resources, distributed solutions, which now need to be integrated and enhanced. And here we're talking about really viable business models rather than just acting on a problem, but shifting the business. 
companies in the energy and industrial sectors are prioritizing moving to cleaner energy sources in the long term by adopting new technologies, pioneering new partnerships, and anticipating changing cost structures. And like in many other industries, digitalization is key. So 70% of executives said this is the key driver for low carbon future. Considering and coming to the topic of electromobility, of course, not only transport, but electrifying the whole value chain is key to transition to a sustainable future. So our 100% renewable study from last year showed that the majority of industrial manufacturers have electrified their processes where feasible along the whole value chain, ranging from the production processes and the supply chain. As many companies electrify their processes, there will be also more use cases where decarbonization is sped up and electrification becomes one of the major drivers for mobility. However, we also need to consider that there is an interdependence between the demand of electric mobility and the pricing for oils. Currently, nearly 60% of the global oil demand comes from transportation. And as we start replacing oil-dependent modes with electric mobility, we anticipate a drop in prices, which can serve as accelerator for the adoption of electric models. The rise of EVs can also help our companies to engage more with customers, making the customer more and more an active actor in the whole use of the electricity from purchase to different applications. For example, implementing the vehicle-to-grid technologies and deciding when does my electric vehicle serve as a capacitor, giving the energy back to the grid and actually earning money for me, and when is the best time to charge it. So I'm actively involving the customer into the management of electrified devices and mobility is being a major part of it. It also opens up new business models. So for example, the so-called distributed energy resource strategies, the DER strategies, will see power companies considering in selling, installing, and maintaining of DERs as a potential new revenue source. For the contents, DR systems are small-scale on-site units of local energy generation that diversify the traditionally centralized grid models. So, for example, we're talking about battery storage, about EV chargers, solar PV units, much more localized and distributed. Power companies can aggregate DRs across time and location and pay DR owners accordingly to provide expanded grid services. Then there is the model of transactive energy models. So basically using, for example, blockchain technology to manage transactions with EVs like the vehicle to grid transactions I was talking before. Many of these new business models are subject to evolving market structures and regulations. So there is still uncertainty when they will be mainstream and especially in Southeast Asia, where and when the technology will be adopted. But we are for sure there to support the deployment of these new ideas and new business models across our customer portfolio. Both of you have had extensive experiences in Southeast Asia. Terence, from a Southeast Asia perspective, can you share with us the state of electromobility in the region 
and how it fares in the global context, and what can Singapore and Southeast Asia learn from EV adoption in other regions like China, the Nordics, and selected states in the US. For this question, one key lesson for us is that we have to not repeat the mistakes that are made in those countries that have earlier adoption of EVs. So there are some uh, problems that emerge, for example, interoperability between charging networks and the poor pulling out of EV rebates. These have contributed towards a very fragmented and uncertain market development for electric vehicles. So we have the benefit of hindsight, given that we are later in the market development stage, and we should do well to avoid these problems experienced by these pioneering countries. So to elaborate, a common problem experienced in several European countries was the presence of multiple EV charging networks in different territories, each having their own systems and solutions. So in order to use the charging across different areas, if you are a driver of electric vehicle, you had to be registered with several networks, which means different ways of starting charging sessions, different mobile apps, and different payment systems. So this makes it extremely fragmented for the end user, and it, it wasn't a very pleasant experience if you wanted to interoperate within the different networks. So a better design system should have interoperation in mind and the end users being able to roam seamlessly between the networks. The other problem with regards to the EV policies is, as we have seen in Hong Kong, a very abrupt removal of EV rebates, which led to market uncertainty. For example, uh, just before the rebates were removed, the market actually experienced an extremely sharp spike in demand for electric vehicles, namely Tesla and a few other brands. So they experienced you know, the best uh, sales volumes uh, in the months prior to the removal of the rebates. And after the rebates were taken away, the market crashed and demand really trickled down to close to zero. So this stop-start way that the EV sales were going off was detrimental towards the market development. And what would be more helpful was that if there was more clarity on the EV policies and a more staggered withdrawal of the EV policies as opposed to an abrupt removal. So these are some of the lessons that we could learn. Countries with a bit less development, but a lot more learning lessons. And Andre, building on top of what Terence just mentioned, do you think the energy industries in Southeast Asia are positioned for lower carbon future? Yeah, so I couldn't agree more with Terence. I have worked on the topic of electrification across Europe, US and China. And the main thing we have as an advantage in Southeast Asia is that we can learn from the developments early on, but also adopt newer and more advanced technology, both on the hardware as well as on the software side. So topic of having a much higher maturity of fast charging right now when the Southeast Asian markets are entering and starting to build up infrastructure or much advanced solutions for public transport charging, so bus charging, and also optimization platforms 
can help us to leapfrog in the region. And there can be some very bold decisions saying, okay, maybe there are some parts of the city where I just offer a fast charging infrastructure because I believe this is the future. What I think is important is also to go much more into simulation approaches and help to scale up the infrastructure in Southeast Asia parallel to the demand. We've seen in other markets a land grab approach where a lot of infrastructure has been built in advance without securing the utilization of charging stations. And that led to a lot of sunk cost and a lot of working capital where the return of investment was not there to justify further expansion of infrastructure. So rather than putting all the investments at once, I would see a gradual scale up of the infrastructure, which requires also to understand where the demand is coming from. And would that, on the one hand side, secure this demand satisfied, right? So well, will be the people adopting the charging stations, which bus routes, which should I electrify first? And what will be my financial impact? How can I improve the fleet management in terms of allocating the vehicles to the charging stations and increasing the high utilization of vehicles and the charging infrastructure? These are the questions where simulation approaches and the clear orchestration of the charging station uh, through data can help. Like with any market, the environment in Southeast Asia comes with its own set of advantages and disadvantages for mobility players to navigate through. I wanted to hear from the both of you. What areas or opportunities do you think ecosystem players should focus on to accelerate the adoption of electromobility in the region. Terence, perhaps we can start with you? Sure, Adi. So collaboration is extremely important for a new industry. Electric mobility is at the confluence of multiple industries uh, that are existing. For example, the automotive, the real estate, the utility companies, as well as the hardware manufacturers. So this unusual arrangement makes for strange bedfellows because electric mobility cannot be sustained or cannot be provided by a single sector. An electric vehicle requires EV charging infrastructure to be installed at buildings. And this means that a healthy electric mobility ecosystem needs the participation of multiple stakeholders. And Having said that, it's important for businesses and industries to be open-minded about forming partnerships to broaden the scope and expand market size. And they should do this instead of competing for limited market share within a very nascent industry. And Andre, anything else to add? I agree with Terence. What I would add is that there is a need to define standards early on. That's what we've seen decelerating the adoption of certain charging technologies and talking about payment protocols, about communication protocols, about pricing, right? Where do we need to standardize and where do we allow the free market? And I think also for the adoption of technologies which allow for more convenient charging for the private user like plug and charge, there is a need for different type of companies to collaborate. So the payment providers, the CPOs, so charging pillar operators, the aggregators have to work on a unified technical platform and also on, on data sharing in order to make the experience of charging more seamless and more convenient. And this is, again, when we talk about Southeast Asia, where we have the advantage that we've seen these type of models being deployed elsewhere to learn from them. 
but also go with our own way, leveraging sometimes very local ecosystem players. Right? So you will see different ecosystem players being active in the same sectors, dependent country by country. And this is where you need a local approach and also a decision what type of collaboration model are you going into. Is this a consortium formed by the ecosystem in the country with the majority of private sector players? Or is it more of a government or third party led initiative where you have an orchestrator in the middle or a standard setting body? So these are the decision points which the countries and the ecosystems have to make to see what works the most efficient for the local context. Now, picking up from what the both of you just mentioned, what will be some of the challenges ecosystem players are bound to face in driving the adoption? And are there any factors that they should consider? Terence? Well, electrification will be happening at different rates for different countries. And the reason for this is because of the different geography, the different electrical infrastructure or the different availability of EV models. So having said that, when you are operating in a certain country you know, in Southeast Asia, uh, what works for your country may not necessarily uh, be easily scaled to your neighboring countries. And to this point, you know, based on the readiness for EV charging infrastructure, an important transition technology is the, in the form of plug-in hybrids, which uh, should be dominant in many parts of Southeast Asia due to the unavailability of a reliable charging network. So this means that you know ecosystem players, when they are operating in this space, they need to ensure that the charging infrastructure have to be catered to the different kinds of EVs, be it full electric plug-in hybrids or buses or fleet vehicles and also to improve the uh, overall awareness, the public awareness of charging infrastructure that is available. And Andre, what about you? So I would add to the types of vehicles which Terence just mentioned is that a lot of countries in Southeast Asia are also have a very big two-wheeler sector which right. comes with new models like battery swapping. Of course, we've seen battery swapping implementations for private vehicles, but they couldn't be so much at scale as with two-wheelers. So this is a solution which might be quite unique to the uh, regional area here. Additionally, just drawing on the experiences uh, with other countries on the policy approaches, I believe that what I've seen working across different geographies is the topic of incentivizing the usage uh, rather than just focusing on the purchase incentive. So how can I create an advantage for the usage of an EV compared to an internal combustion engine, be it uh, in terms of the running taxation or the topic of special parking spaces, special lanes that will drive the consumer rather to buy electric vehicles than an ICE. And Terence, I want you to weigh in on this. From the opportunities and challenges discussed earlier, the question that is lingering in many minds right now, what needs to be true to accelerate the adoption of electromobility in the region? So I'd like to point back to Andre's important point about standardization. And that is really the very basic level of requirement in order for electric mobility to succeed. Now, if we look at the charging infrastructure, for example, 
the standardization of club standards is of course a very important point. So to us, standardization is important on two levels. The first is the plug standard and the next is also the communication with charging back-end operator. And I would like to bring up an example, a very notable example for a company that did not do this well. And, you know, once again, we have the benefit of hindsight to be able to learn from the mistakes of our predecessors and to make sure that these problems do not emerge again. So this company was called Ecotality. And it was back in 2012 when they won several government tender awards for building a nationwide charging network. So the charging network that they have developed and implemented was called the Blink Charging Network. Well, it was a very innovative uh, company, you know, and it, it was a startup, obviously. And they had a rather aggressive plan to deploy the charging stations. However, because the charging stations were communicating with their proprietary back-end system, and that makes it extremely difficult to scale. And when there were several problems emerging with the company due to the mismanagement of funding, uh, due to the rate that they were expanding, they did not foresee that the company ran into cash flow problems. And this means that a lot of the charging hardware that were deployed out across the US suddenly became stranded assets. And this stranded assets comes in the form of charging stations that are there, able to charge the vehicles, but unable to send that information to another backend operator easily. And this example points to the importance of having standardizations, communications, and in the form of open standards. So open standards, one of is OCPP, which stands for Open Charge Point Protocol. So that is actually a shared industry standard that runs across the industry. This allows different backend operators to adopt this communication standard with the charging hardware so that whenever you know one of the charging network operators, if for whatever reasons they decided not to do business anymore, it will be a more seamless process as opposed to having to take out all the charging stations and then putting in new ones just to ensure a continuity of business. Now, expanding on the question that I've just asked, regulation is a huge part in driving the transformation of the mobility sector. Singapore has recently signaled its intention to phase out internal combustion vehicles by 2040. So, what role can organizations like IVAS play in engaging the government and how is IVAS planning to support the transition from ICE to EV for Singapore? Terence? Given the announcements from the Singapore government, we can expect the last of the internal combustion engines to be sold out by 2030 and every new vehicle so must be electric or electrified in some form by the year 2031 and onwards. So since the vehicle population growing in Singapore can be carefully controlled via this 10-year Certificate of Entitlement uh, or COE system, 
we can expect a very gradual phase out of the older internal combustion engine models by 2040. And that is obviously a very good government vision for the industry. Putting that goal out there for the industry gives a lot of certainty. It gives a lot of direction to the industries of what is to come in terms of EV policies. So for government incentives, some of them, for example, the early EV adoption incentive that has been announced, we feel that some of them are needed at the start, but they won't have to be relied on eventually. As what Andre have mentioned, to a certain point, the market forces will simply play a bigger role in this transition. And because the decision to go electric will be a simple matter of economics, the electric vehicle total cost of ownership will simply be lower than that of the ICE car. So coming back to the role that the EV association would likely play, these announced changes are generating a lot of interest amongst the industry players and that includes the dealerships and the automakers. The rebates generally encourage the dealerships to bring in the newer electrified models uh, while the surcharge will affect several models, especially the older and inefficient uh, ICE cars. However, the details of this new scheme must be well understood by the dealerships and the automakers so that they will know which are the suitable models to homologate and introduce for Singapore. So based on this example, you know, EV Association will have to play an important role of aggregating and consolidating information and making sure that that information is passed very efficiently between the government agencies and a fast-growing industry. And Andre, how soon can consumers in Southeast Asia expect a widespread shift towards electromobility? Well, I think the shift is already happening. So we see slowly but steadily introduction of new models. We see more and more tenders coming towards bus electrification. Right, It starts with a small number of buses. I think we are at about 60 buses right now in Singapore, but there will be more to come in the future. And we will see bigger shifts happening, actually, I believe, with the introduction of new models. So a lot of manufacturers globally have committed to the vision to electrify major parts of their portfolio, up to the whole portfolio uh, with electric cars. And when the consumer starts having the choice, we will see also more and more adoption. So, of course, everything what Terence said is absolutely correct. The incentives have to be in place. The economics will play out. But I think it's also because when we talk about the consumer, the emotional aspect of a vehicle purchase, of a mobility purchase is also there. So as we see the more variety catering to different tastes, the electrification will also advance. What I think is so exciting about the electric cars is that you have a lot of freedom in designing those, as you can separate the top hat, so the upper part, which is used as a driver cell, from the lower part, the skateboard. And with that can also save costs. So I believe the shift is already happening and it will only accelerate in the future and very much looking forward to it. Now, looking ahead into the near future, with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic, how do you think the timeline for EV adoption in Southeast Asia will be affected? Terence? So the automotive industry, for example, has been uh, one of the major casualties of COVID-19. And, you know, this is not going to be a pandemic that is 
going away uh, in the short term. So it's, it's going to be a sort of a medium to long term situation whereby we are going to see depressed demand for car sales as a whole. You know, it doesn't just affect electric vehicles, it affects sales of vehicles across the, the whole um, spectrum. As the industry players are focused on more immediate and pressing issues, for example, the business continuity in a post-pandemic uh, situation, the electrification of vehicles is likely going to take uh, a backseat as the priority will be on the recovery and operating efficiently you know, in this new reality that we are in. And uh, like Andre mentioned, you know, although the short-term outlook is challenging, I think the overall long-term electrification trend will be very clear. And that is especially important because along with the government's uh, vision for gradual phase-out of ICE vehicles, we can expect that all new vehicles sold must be electric or electrified by 2031. So that gives us you know, a, a longer term span of 10 years that we see this shift taking place. Now, I want to circle back my earlier point about collaboration because this is a new industry. Collaboration is extremely important. Collaboration avoids unnecessary competition and avoid having too much overlaps in, in terms of you know, investment and resources. And by dividing and conquering each party in their ecosystem should try to figure out their roles during this industry. I'll give you an interesting uh, example of how some automotive uh, companies you know, are working with the, the property owners to launch their EV model. So uh, BMW, Porsche, these are some of the automotive companies that are going to introduce you know, their newer EV models. They do need the support of the property owners like Capital Land, Marina Bay Sands in Singapore. And the charging network companies, SP Group, Green Lots, Shell, Shell Recharge, in order to launch these EV models. We will, we will not be able to launch electric vehicle in this new reality without taking care of the EV infrastructure. So when you put out your product out there, the conversation about EV charging should immediately come in very seamlessly. And that is why the collaboration between the automotive sector and the real estate and the utility companies has to be extremely tight in order for this seamless transition to happen. And Andre, anything else to add? I have a big agreement and a small disagreement with Darren. So big agreement is, I think, the long-term trend to electrification. We agree it's there. It's not going away. But I must say, why are electric vehicles and electrification the innovation which I believe is less likely to be deprioritized? There are two factors to this. Number one is a lot of manufacturers globally already committed to electrifying major parts of their vehicle portfolios. And that means that not only the communication has been made and the consumers are expecting the models to come out, but also that they have already a substantial volume of cost invested into developing the new technologies, the new architectures, and the new models. Of course, you could stop a vehicle program, but it is also then bound 
to a very high sunk cost, which I think a lot of manufacturers are not likely to take into account. On the other hand, the nations committed to decarbonizing at the climate conference in Paris in 2015 and reconfirmed this commitment recently, which means that transportation as a major contributor to carbon footprint of a nation will be addressed by these nations and very likely through electrifying both the public transportation as well as providing incentives and the regulation to electrify the private transport. For that reason, I believe that electrification is still on the agenda for both private players as well as the public authorities. Now to wrap up our discussion, I would like to ask both of you something a bit more personal. Perhaps we can start with you first, Terence. What excites you most about the future of mobility that gets you up in the morning? Thanks, Dee. So, you know, the future of mobility, a lot of industry experts believe it's connected, electrified, autonomous and shared. I believe we are quite comfortably sitting in the first quadrant, which is already connected. And the second quadrant would be electrified. And I'm really excited to be in part of this movement to drive towards a 100% electric future, whereby all vehicles are electrified. And for me, you know, what really got me started Right, was the problem of climate change, right? And I felt that it was an extremely important problem that our generation and our children's generation and their children's generation will face, you know, in the years to come. A sort of a continuous uh, journey towards doing things better, uh, being able to utilize resources more efficiently, being able to move around more efficiently. And we started this association based on the belief that the electric vehicle is superior to the internal combustion engine. What is lacking though is the coordination uh, EV infrastructure that is required to support these electric vehicles. So, you know, I hope that our work at the EV Association is slowly contributing towards positive change. And my son is just six weeks old and being a very newly minted father, I really do hope that the work that I'm doing today would be able to leave a better world for my son. You know, when he grows up and he gets his first vehicle, uh, hopefully it'll be electric. You know, that positive change would be something that is manifested in his life and, you know, in the future generations. And Andre, I know we've asked you this before, but what excites you most about the future of mobility that gets you up in the morning? And has that changed since we last spoke? Well, uh, not much has changed, <laughs> but just to emphasize what Terence just said, right? Mobility for me is a fundamental enabler to being human. And we need to make it sustainable for the next generation and the generation after and the generation after in order to provide them with the same or even better choices as we have today to make it more inclusive, more sustainable and more safe. And working on this and doing my part is what gets me up every morning. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode. I wanted to thank both our guests, Andre and Terence, for such an interesting conversation. In the meantime, if you want to comment on this podcast or the topics covered, you can send us an email at cpodcast@deloitte.com. That's spelled S-E-A podcast at deloitte.com. 
Also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast to get the latest episodes. We're available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Stitcher. I'm Dishraf, and until next time. <laughs>